Morning, church. How are you guys doing? Good. I'm really excited to preach this morning. You guys eager to hear from God's word? Good. Open to Deuteronomy 13. Deuteronomy is the fifth book in the Bible, relatively easy to find. We're in the 13th chapter. The goal is to finish this before Advent, not the chapter, the book. Yeah. If you're visiting, my name is Kelly. I serve as senior pastor. Glad you're here. We hope you feel quickly at home. A part of finding a church home includes giving financially. We give at Glowen Bible Church to help others follow Jesus. And we would invite you to be a part of that so that you can begin to feel connected. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So many times we give uh, guests, those looking for a church home, a pass when it comes to joining in financially. One of the best ways to see if this is where you fit is not to wait six months to give financially. It's to give where you worship regularly is the way to connect with the people of God, the purposes of God, right? To get on board with what God's doing in and through your local church. I should uh, encourage members and regular attenders in that same vein as well. Where your treasure is being stored, where you're investing is where your heart is. And one of the remedies for feeling far from God may be to invest more financially in his kingdom work. We, uh, the question that was on my heart this, uh, this week as I prepared to preach is the following. It's on the screen. How are we to respond when other Christians discourage godliness in our lives? It's one thing to be discouraged in our faith by non-Christians. We would expect that. After all, we don't share the same worldview, the same values, the same priorities, goals that non-Christians share. But what do we do when Christian leaders, family, friends, discourage us in living a godly life? I'll be vulnerable with you. Some of my greatest discouragements to living a godly life, that is, to my living on mission and carrying my cross daily, have not come from outside the church, but from inside the church. And I know I'm not alone in that. Jesus himself was one moment acknowledged as the Messiah by the uh, apostle Peter, the disciple, one of his first 12 disciples, Peter, said, you are the Christ. The very next moment, that same disciple discouraged Jesus in his mission as the Christ, as Jesus was talking about giving his life as a sacrifice, as, as in dying. And Peter said, no, no, would that that would never happen. And Jesus says to him, maybe you remember rather famously, get behind me, Satan. Can you imagine being rebuked by our Savior as the mouthpiece of Satan? And if I'm going to be truly vulnerable, I should also, I should admit not only that I've been discouraged by other Christians, but that I have at times also discouraged other Christians in living a godly life. Rather than spurring them on to love and good deeds, that's what we're to be doing this morning and day in, day out, we're 
We're to be encouraging, spurring one another on to love and good deeds, says the writer of Hebrews. Yes, I've been both discouraged by Christians. I've also done my fair share of discouraging. So how are we to handle it when that happens? When friends, Christian parents, Christian children, Christian spouse, Christian neighbor, colleague, even a Christian pastor or missionary discourages us. So we work our way through chapter 13. We must remember that the context in Deuteronomy is very different from our context. So we need to bridge from the Old Testament into the New Testament and then on to modern application. So that's what I'm working at this morning. In today's passage, Moses provides the Israelites with instructions on how to deal with fellow Israelites who encourage idolatry. Idolatry is the worship of created things rather than the creator of all things. And Moses is giving instructions on what to do if a fellow Israelite encourages someone to turn away from the worship of Yahweh, the name by which God revealed himself to Moses on Mount Sinai, Yahweh. In fact, hallelujah is a transliteration of Yah, Yahweh. It means praise Yahweh. It's not a throwaway Christian word. It actually has meaning. Hallelujah means praise to Yahweh. Yahweh is the name by which God revealed himself to Moses. I am that I am. He's giving them instructions on what to do if a fellow Israelite says, no longer worship Yahweh or don't worship only Yahweh, but worship other gods, other idols. Throughout Deuteronomy, Moses is preparing Israel to enter the promised land. It was the land of Canaan. It was a land possessed by seven other nations. Those nations are listed in Deuteronomy 7, chapter uh, chapter 7, verse 1. Amorites, Hittites, Girgashites, Hevites, Jebusites, Perizzites, and the Canaanites. Broadly understood this land, uh, called this land the land of Canaan. None of whom, none of those nations worshipped Yahweh. None of them said hallelujah, praise to Yahweh. But all of them, all those nations were polytheistic idolaters. They worshiped many different gods and they made images. They fashioned images to represent those gods and then they bowed before them. Last week, Pastor John Vanderbilt worked through chapter 12 in which we learned that Israel, as they entered the land, they were not to worship in the places or the ways that the Canaanites worshiped. They were to break down and completely destroy the idols and the altars of the Canaanites. And then they were to worship in the place and in the ways that God would show them. Moses is still addressing worship when it comes to chapter 13. He's not off this topic yet. The the focus moves from how to handle idols and their altars to how to handle idolaters within Israel. Three times in chapter 13... Verse 5, 11, and 14, Moses warns against idolaters among you. The first person addressed is the spiritual leader in Israel, the prophet. What if a prophet, the one gifted, called by God to instruct, correct, and guide the people of God in matters of faith, what if he encourages idolatry? So chapter 13, verse 1. If a prophet or one who foretells by dreams appears among you and announces to you a sign 
or wonder. And if the sign or wonder spoken of happens, it actually takes place. And then that prophet says, quote, let us follow other gods. You see the tension there. He got it right. It actually took place. And then he instructs them to worship other gods. Let us follow after gods, gods you've not known, and let us worship them. You must not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer. The Lord your God is testing you to find out whether you love him with all your heart and with all your soul. That's a mini Shema, right? Love God with everything we have, heart, soul, mind, strength. It is the Lord your God you must follow, him you must revere, keep his commands, obey him, serve him, hold fast to him. That prophet or dreamer must be put to death for inciting rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. That prophet or dreamer tried to turn you from the way the Lord your God commanded you to follow. You must purge the evil and then it's the first from among you. Let me begin by dispelling the notion that Moses' condemnation of this prophet is because he worked signs and wonders. Moses does not say this prophet should be put to death because he, he performed signs and wonders. Prophecy, dreams, signs and wonders were and still are today a legitimate means of revelation for God's people. We can talk about that more on the podcast. But the earliest Christians actually prayed for signs and wonders to confirm the gospel. Look in Acts chapter 4, verse 30. Prophecy, dreams, signs and wonders aren't the basis of our faith. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the basis of our faith. And for this reason, revelatory gifts never are to contradict Scripture. That's exactly what we've got going on here. We have a wonder worker, a prophet, a dreamer, contradicting the revelation of God to keep his commands and worship him only. Those who perform signs and wonders are never to use their influence to encourage idolatry. Instead, all gifts, prophecy, preaching, preaching is a function of the gift of prophecy, all gifts are to be used to advance the kingdom, the purposes of God. In fact, that's what the prayer time is about at the end of the service that we offer almost every week. We're asking, in the prayer time, we're asking God's kingdom to come, which includes his people experiencing healing and deliverance and receiving supernatural guidance and wisdom. So what Moses is warning against is not the exercise of gifts, but the person who uses those gifts to encourage idolatry, to draw us away from fidelity to our God. You may know in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul told Pastor Timothy in his first letter to Timothy, he said, watch your life and doctrine closely. He said this, for Timothy's benefit, but he also said this for the benefit of those who Timothy was caring for, spiritually leading. He was a pastor in the church of Ephesus. Watch your life and your doctrine closely. 
I'll give you a modern example of a pastor who encouraged idolatry. Benny Hinn, the infamous miracle-working televangelist for decades, corrupted the gospel, actively encouraging idolatry by preaching the prosperity gospel, that is, the promise of health and wealth for any who follow after Jesus. That is the prosperity gospel, the promise of health and wealth for any who follow after Jesus. Remember, idolatry is the worship of created things rather than the creator of all things, which means we can turn almost anything into an idol. All of God's gifts make for fabulous idols. That's tongue-in-cheek, right? We are, uh, our hearts are factually an idol factory. We have this propensity to turn the gifts of God into things we want to worship rather than the creator of the gift and the giver of the gift. Benny Hinn's idol was a luxurious lifestyle, but in 2019 he confessed this as sin and repented publicly. I don't know him personally. I only know what he said in his confession. No small matter. You may know that one of his relatives, Costi Hinn, publicly ridiculed him for the prosperity gospel, and he went on to admit, acknowledge, confess, and repent. But make no mistake, it isn't the gifts that God is condemning in this morning's passage, but the misuse of those gifts to encourage idolatry. Secondly, let me make it clear that we'll not be recommending that we put to death spiritual leaders who use God's gifts to encourage idolatry. That makes sense, right? The church didn't call for Benny Hinn to be put to death. Although it was Moses' directive to the Israelites to do so, we must understand how unique was Israel at this time. Israel was a theocracy, which means God was their national ruler. Thus the name of our sermon series, The King and His People. Yahweh was both the nation's God and monarch, ruler. It was His law that it was to govern the nation, such that fidelity in worship was required under the penalty of death. The first command, you should have no other God before me, the second command, and don't make any images of me by which you'd represent me, and don't bow to those images. Don't make idols of me. The first and the second command were given under penalty of death. Death may seem like a harsh consequence for idolatry, but we still have federal laws today in America that require death as penalty for treason. If fidelity to America's constitution matters in our modern nation, how much more should it matter for Israel? And remember, during the occupation of the Promised Land, God commanded that Israel put to death many, many Canaanites for their idolatry. He is simply being consistent. God doesn't show favorites. He doesn't judge unfairly. He judges fairly. And whether you're a Canaanite idolater or an Israelite idolater, if you break the first and second command, you'll be put to death. More importantly, the penalty for idolatry is still death. Praise be to God through Christ who took our place as idolaters. Here I'll ask for an amen. Here's the gospel. 
The penalty for idolatry is still death. I'm sure I have idols in my life that I'm unaware of. I'm sure we all have idols. Things that we're serving and cherishing more than we cherish our creator, Yahweh. Things we've elevated and put on the throne of our lives that we're bowing to rather than Yahweh. And make no mistake, the penalty is death. And not just physical death. It is eternal death. That is a separation from our creator unless we trust in Christ who takes our place on the cross, dying the death that we deserve. That's the good news of the gospel. It's tremendous news. And I should say that if you're here this morning and you've, you've not before trusted in Christ as Savior, you're here checking out the claims of the gospel. Let me urge you, trust in Christ because you're an idolater. I'll guarantee it. If you're not trusting in Christ... Then your worship, we're made to worship. Frankly, we were created to worship. We were created to worship our creator. And separate from worshiping our creator, we're going to put something, and it's usually ourselves, on the throne to bow to. Narcissism is arguably the America's, America's national religion. Let me urge you, trust in Christ this morning who took our place so that we can live eternal, so that we can know life here today, springs of living water welling up inside, Christ said, as we depend upon him, and escape the penalty of death because of our idolatry. Let me also address the word test in verse 3. We don't like tests because we fear we may flunk them and lose out on an opportunity. If you flunk the ACT or if you don't do well on it, you don't get to go to the college of your choice. But we should read this word test not as a pass-fail dichotomy, but rather as a blessing-burden reality. God longs to bless us, thus he tests us. We should read it perhaps as an immaturity-maturity dichotomy. Here's what I mean. For the people of God, the testing of God is never aimed at the end goal of rejecting us. It's always aimed at refining us. He tests us to refine us. You may remember that the Spirit of God led Jesus Christ himself, the Son of God, into the wilderness, it's Matthew chapter 4, for testing. A time of trial. In the New Testament book of James, we learn that the testing of our faith is to cultivate perseverance so that we might be mature, complete, lacking in nothing. That's God's longing for us, that we'd be mature, complete, lacking in nothing. God's heart is to strengthen us, bless us, grow us, reward us. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 10, we learn that God it disciplines us so that we would share in his holiness. He longs for us to share in the, his goodness to grow up, go on to maturity, so that we truly carry the easy yoke and the light burden, not the crushing yoke, right? The heavy burden of sin, but that we can set sin aside increasingly and follow him wholeheartedly. So what are some possible points of application for us this morning? I would say fix your eyes on Jesus, not on your spiritual leaders. 
There's only one perfect man, the man Christ Jesus, which means that all spiritual leaders have the capacity to discourage our faith and steer us towards idols. Moses himself will not make it into the promised land as he's disciplined by the Lord. That's why it's particularly important for parents, and I address parents because the lion's share of Glenelg Bible Church are raising school-aged children, but grandparents too. That's why it's particularly important for parents and grandparents as spiritual leaders in the home to point their kids to Christ as early and as often as possible. And to be honest with them, as it is age-appropriate, to be honest with their kids about their sinfulness and why they are trusting in Christ and encouraging their kids to do so. The goal of parenting and grandparenting is ultimately to get our kids' eyes off of us and point them towards Yahweh, to whom they must give an account. And so a part of that functionality, the preaching of the gospel in the homes, is to get out of the way and make sure that we're not up on the throne of our children's lives and to point them towards Christ who should be on the throne of their lives. And so that means includes talking about, age appropriately, the sin in our lives. Fixing our eyes on Jesus and not on our spiritual leader, leaders is also important because there's good evidence to conclude that we are particularly susceptible to being misled by those who've been given pronounced gifts. We are particularly susceptible to being misled by those who have been given pronounced gifts. I find it fascinating that this prophet within Israel, this is an Israelite prophet, gets it right. His signs, his wonders, his dreams, they're spot on. I'll never forget, I, and I've shared before, I grew up in a church where there were radical conversions, adults being converted, powerful stories of conversion. That's a miracle. That's why I bring it. It's a miracle when anybody moves from selfless and selfish and self-centered to selfless and God-centered, that's a miracle when our hearts are changed. That's the greatest miracle. Only God works that miracle. But I, there are also physical healings there were demonic deliverances. There were, it was a powerful, uh, as far as gifting, church. But then the senior pastor, who had led there for some 20-some-odd years, and was actually the one that baptized me uh, when I was 14-ish, right thereabouts, he was caught in, you know, some moral scandal. I praise God that, you know, by his grace, that didn't uh, knock me off course completely. And in a room this size, you know, probably all of us have been discouraged by spiritual leaders at some point. We are particularly susceptible between, by being less misled by those who have pronounced gifts. In other words, bad character, it doesn't always undermine gifting. In God's grace... Even donkeys talk. It's an Old Testament story if you're not familiar with it. Even donkeys get it right sometimes. 
That's how I would even define the church. A bunch of broken people through whom God is working despite themselves. Some highly gifted spiritual leaders are completely bankrupt when it comes to character. And for that reason, we need to be very careful. We must work hard to distinguish between a spiritual leader's gifting and their character. Just because they minister powerfully doesn't mean we should emulate them. In the New Testament, Paul's words to Pastor Timothy have to do with his character development. It's on the screen. Set an example for the believers in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. It's not set an example through signs and wonders and deliverances and exorcisms and No, it's character development. The church needs spiritual leaders, elders, pastors, small group leaders, Sunday school teachers, parents, grandparents. If you have a friend, then you exercise spiritual influence. But we desperately need spiritual leaders, not simply with great gifts but with godly character. Ideally, the church would enjoy both. (laughs) But we need to be honest with ourselves about how easy it is to be led astray by highly productive leaders. History is littered with leaders who had little character and great gifting and led people astray. And we are to, in fact, Eagerly desire the gifts. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 1. We are to eagerly desire God's giftings. But we're to watch closely our lives and doctrine. Too often, churches have fallen into one or the other camp. We're a gifts church, and we're not focused much on character development or we're a character development church, and we're not focused much on the gifts and their exercise. Folks, by God's grace, we would be a word and power church. We'd eagerly desire the gifts, and we'd not be permissive when it comes to sin. It's interesting to me that Paul wrote to Timothy about the importance of his character and doctrinal fidelity. He says, it's on the screen, verse 15, be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Not only are we to look for character and doctrinal fidelity, we're to watch our life and doctrine really closely, but we're also to look for diligence in those areas, wholehearted commitment in those areas, and progress. (laughs) Leaders are to make progress. It's what I like to call being game ready. No leader is perfect, and I tell the staff here at the church all the time, perfection's not required to lead, but diligence is required, commitment's required, and progress is required. Does that make sense? 
No parent, no pastor, no small group leader, no Sunday school teacher is expected to be perfect. But too often, this reality of imperfection is basically cultural permission, culturally permission to continue in sin. And that ought not to be. We're to make progress. God's primary goal among his people is their character development, not the exercise of their gifts. Someone shared with me uh, just this week that they had a vision of Christ high and lifted up. I don't doubt it. But what I found interesting was it spurred her on to love and good deeds, not to seek more visions. Do you follow me? The gifts aren't the goal, nor are their exercise the goal. It's like when we give our kids gifts at Christmas. We want them to go on and be mature. We don't want them to get stuck and, and, and fixate on the gifts. We want them to grow up and go on to maturity and develop character. Which brings me to my second application point. It's pretty straightforward. Listen to the Lord, which means saturating our lives with Scripture. Moses writes in verse 3, you must not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer. Who are you listening? Who are we listening to? And I, when I say that, I mean podcasts, movies, news. Who do we give our attention to? Verse 4, it's the Lord your God you must follow. Him you must revere. Keep his commands. Obey him. Serve him. Hold fast to him. To whom are we holding fast? You can tell who you're holding fast to just by who you're giving your time to, who you're letting exercise influence. I have a friend, have a friend that says, who should be paying rent in your mind? Right? They've got so much of your attention one of the going deeper questions, which is in the bulletin, no, question number four, to whom or what are we regularly listening? I'm afraid many within the church would be easily led astray because we're not saturated with God's word. We aren't holding fast to him. Whenever I talk about the importance of being saturated in God's word, I'm always reminded of what I learned at the U.S. Mint. We did the obligatory D.C. trip with our children. I love D.C., so it was, it was fun. We did a tour of the Mint, the U.S. Mint there, and on the tour, you see them, they're cranking out millions of dollars, and they'll tell you, while on this tour, we'll, we'll, we'll mint, you know, whatever, eight gazillion dollars. Insert governmental joke here. All right, so <laughs> we'll mint all this money, and, and then they have this person, and it's, it's a person at the end of the line holding up the bills and looking at them closely. And it was fascinating to hear how they, how they train people to identify counterfeits, not counterfeits within the mint, but counterfeiting is this huge threat to our economy because it, it upsets um, the, uh, the money supply. And so they talk about how they train counterfeiters. Here's what's interesting about how to train a counterfeiter, someone that spots a fake bill. They don't train counterfeiters by showing them fake bills. 
Think about how many variants are possible in a fake bill. No, they train counterfeiters by showing them the real deal. They give hours and hours and hours and hours and hours for emphasis, right? Hours. They're saturated with the real deal. And it, the minute they spot a variant, they've got it. They say, no, that's not true. Folks, if we, if we want to know what's true, and I think of all the turmoil in the local school boards, in the political debates in our land, in the ethical questions, sexual ethics in particular, that are needing to be addressed culturally. The number of variants possible to falsehood are innumerable. But there's one truth, the man Christ Jesus. And so if you want to be able to spot an idol, a falsehood, saturate yourself with the word of God. It's actually quite liberating to realize that if we know God's word backwards and forwards, he'll give us wisdom. He'll give us wisdom. All right, so let's press on. We've got a little bit further to go, and then we'll uh, close in song and prayer. Verse 6, so he shifts from the spiritual leaders to those closest to us. If your very own brother or your own daughter or son or the wife or your wife you love or your closest friend secretly entices you, it's interesting that it's secret and it's interesting that it's an enticement. Saying, let us go and worship other gods, gods that neither you nor your ancestors have known, gods of the peoples around you, the Canaanites, whether near or far from, the, from one end of the land to the other. Don't yield to them or listen to them. Show them no pity. Do not spare them or shield them. You must certainly put them to death. Your hand must be the first in putting them to death and then the hands of all the people. Stone them to death because they tried to turn you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. For our context, it's because they tried to turn you away from Christ who saves. Then all Israel will hear and be afraid and no one among you, reminds me of Acts chapter five, the death of Ananias and Sapphira. Fear was the result in an ingathering of people into the church. Then all Israel will hear and be afraid, and no one among you will do such an evil thing again. The among you there in verse 11. Now, this is weighty stuff. Let's just go back and make sure we understand. These are the folks closest to us, brothers and sisters, and the wife you love, spouse. So let me just restate again, Israel is unique was unique. They were a theocracy at this time. Treason was not to be tolerated. Treason was to break the first or second commandment. Here we have family and friends secretly enticing the breaking of the first and second commandment. Penalty was death. And family and friends were to take the lead in rooting out, exposing, and punishing the those who were treasonous. 
This type of firmness parallels what we see in the New Testament, Paul's charge in 1 Corinthians 5. And if you have your copy of the scripture open, you might flip to 1 Corinthians 5. So this type of firmness, Israel was unique. But this type of firmness in the Old Testament context matches some firmness we see in the New Testament. And Paul actually quotes from Deuteronomy 13 as he's setting up a disciplinary posture and process. So I'm trying to bridge from old to new and then make modern application. So 1 Corinthians 5, verse uh, 12, Paul's talking about some sin, and it's sexual sin in the church. He says, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? It's rhetorical. Yes is the answer. We're to judge those inside the church. God will judge those outside. And then he quotes, if you've got, you see it on the screen there, expel the wicked person from among you. You see the among you. You see the charge to expel. Put them out of the church. This expulsion quote is thought by many to be a direct uh, lifting of Deuteronomy, uh, the passage Deuteronomy 13. So we see the, the firmness in Deuteronomy 13 and the firmness to, to, to not to abhor wickedness and, and not give room to idolatry within the church. Paul's applying this Old Testament principle here in a New Testament context, and we're, we're not to put people to death at all. Uh, we're also not to tolerate wickedness within the church. So what does that look like? This is the function of membership. In fact, we have a membership class tonight. You'd be welcome to come if you're not a member of Glowing Bible Church. Not everyone who attends Glowen Bible Church is a member. In fact, about, of the number that attend, about, only about half of the adults that attend Glowen Bible Church are members. And I can't help but think what I'm about to share it could be one reason. Membership isn't so much about what's in it for me, but it's actually about what I need, what I'm willing to give, how, how I want to serve. Membership is... is actually a signing on the dotted line saying, yeah, I'm all for being disciplined. I'm all for the church getting all up in my business and talking to me when they feel like I'm off track. About 17 people will be in membership this evening. When we come to membership, we're saying we want to live according to New Testament sexual ethics and when or if we get off track and we're not living according to New Testament sexual ethics, we want help. The specific situation is fascinating here and, and how it's to be disciplined, it's, it's fascinating. Um, the specific situation in Corinth was a man uh, was sleeping with his father's wife. Gross, I know. It wasn't his mom, but it was either a second uh, marriage or a um, the father had more than one wife or something like that, but the son was sleeping with his father's wife, and the church had said nothing about it. In fact, Paul intimates that they boast about it. They boast in as much what they're boasting about is the grace of Jesus Christ, the grace of God shown towards us in Jesus Christ can cover this sin, which is true. God's grace shown towards us in Christ can cover any sin. That doesn't mean we're permissive towards sin. That doesn't mean we green light it. We don't live like hell because heaven is our home. And so Paul tells them, and it's interesting what he tells them, 
verses four and five. It's on the screen. So when you're assembled, we're assembled, and I'm with you in spirit, and the power of the Lord Jesus is present. Let me just step away from the pulpit here for a minute. What do we believe is going on here when we gather? Because Paul thought something, I think Paul, I think we often think something much different than what Paul thinks is going on. What do we think is going on here this morning? He says, when you're assembled, he's talking to the church, and the power of the Lord Jesus is present. Folks, that's good news. That's why we invite people to pray at the end of service. Because we're assembled and the power of the Lord Jesus is present. And, and this man, oh sorry, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of our Lord. What's most beautiful in Paul's directives here to the Corinthians is that it envisions this man being saved. It's not a boot him out of the church to hell with him literally or figuratively. It's no, publicly expose his life as sin, hand him over Satan for the punishing of his flesh, that is, such that he would reap what he sows, so that his spirit may be saved, so that he'll confess, so that he'll repent, so that he'll be restored. And again, we can talk about this on the podcast. The disciplinary work of the church always has in mind the redemption of those. And we, we picture discipline in the church. Um, I often feel like we, we don't have a full scope here of what it is. Uh, picture an iceberg. 99% of church discipline is under the surface of the water. We don't even see it as discipline, but it functionally is. He's talking about the 1% that sticks up out of the water. That's what 1 Corinthians 5 is. It's that 1%. It's the worst case scenario where we're going to hand somebody over to Satan. But the truth is, discipline happens anytime you quote Scripture to your children. It's disciplinary. You share Scripture with friends. You pray with and for other people. It's disciplinary. Anytime you're spurring one another on to loving good deeds, there's a disciplinary function there where we're corralling and we're moving together as the sheep of God, the flock towards maturity. It'd be easy for us to rationalize the sinful behavior of family and friends. Jesus himself faced this. Matthew chapter 12, his mother and brothers come to collect him because they think that he's lost his mind. He takes that opportunity to say, who are my mom and who are my brothers? Who is my mom and who are my brothers? He says, those who do the will of God. That's the impact we're to have on each other. Moses goes on to address the, what if a whole city turns to idolatry? We don't have time for that. I do want to sing a song. Matt, I do want to sing one song and uh, invite people forward for prayer. I've gone over time. Let me pray for us. Would you stand with me? And we'll pray together. Father, we know that your desire for us is that um, we'd go on to maturity, and I want to pray for that. Have mercy on us as a people. Our hearts are idle factories and we quickly give our time and attention to things we ought not, to things that um, 
that bring death into our lives. We pray for your mercy on us. In Jesus' name, amen.